I do encourage you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to this text that JP just read for us. Uh, again, as he said, it's page 863 in the Bibles that you're using, one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seeds. So my mom, she used to tell me about a reoccurring dream she had. Anyone, just out of curiosity, anyone have reoccurring dreams? Anyone? Okay. Oh, okay. A few of you. All right. All right. Well, this was the dream she had as a child. Um, she was, apparently she was walking down the block of her house because I knew the home that she grew up in. I've got this good mental image of this, right? And so she was walking down the block of her house. And when she would get to the end of the block, she would then suddenly find that she was at the start again. And she'd walk again. And then when she got to the end, she'd find she was at the start again. And no matter how many times she would walk in this dream, she could never get off the block, okay? Sounds kind of frustrating to me, honestly, right? And so this was a recurring dream that she had that she just couldn't get off the block. Maybe you felt like that sometimes. So you just can't seem to make progress no matter how hard you try. Or um, maybe you can relate to this video. I'm going to show you this here and talk a little bit about it here. Maybe you can relate to this video here. You see, according to a, 19, a 2015 article in The Atlantic, in the 1970s, NASA analyzed the way astronauts tripped and slid across the lunar surface. Famed astronaut Buzz Aldrin once said that mobility on the moon is like walking on moist talcum powder. So what NASA decided to do, this is a true story, this is your tax dollars at work, they, they analyzed these falls in a way to evaluate differences in dexterity on Earth versus on the moon, okay? And the reports that this came, and you can read about these things, right? Did it, okay, yeah, it's working good. Okay, so you can, you can read about this, and I actually downloaded the report because I was just amazed by this. You can still do this, is that the report, they actually produced some pretty funny uh, statements about this. There we go, okay, all right. So uh, the conclusions were technically useful, although they were somewhat anticlimactic, okay? So for instance, one of them says this, it says this. After analyzing all these falls that these astronauts did on the, the, on the moon's surface, a, pre a preliminary analysis, NASA wrote, suggests that loss of traction on loose soil caused crewmen to slip and fall. <laughs> that was worth the study right there, okay? So in this sermon series, we've been talking about living a grounded life, right? And we've actually looked to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, as kind of a, a working definition of what that may look like. So, therefore, it says, uh, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that uh, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so this is kind of what we're talking about in this sermon series. And we've raised questions or objections to living a grounded life. We've talked about anxiety that is sometimes a, a hindrance us from that or just busyness or past failures or just even just generally the difficulties in life which make living a grounded life challenging. Today's question is how can I live a grounded life when I can't seem to get traction in life? So kind of like these astronauts or kind of like my mom's reoccurring dream. It's like you're trying hard and you're trying to make good decisions and, and you're doing the right things, but it just seems like one thing after another comes at you and you just can't seem to get traction in life. Well, to answer that question, 
We're going to look at two individuals from today's reading, from the text that, that JP just read for us a few minutes. And so there's two individuals that I think are going to be really helpful as we try to figure this out together. But I'm going to pause, ask God's blessing and enablement as I have the privilege of teaching his word, and I want to make sure that I'm asking for his enablement. So let's take a minute and go to prayer. Father, it truly is an amazing privilege to stand in front of people and teach your word. Uh, it's something that I, I don't take lightly, and, and in this moment, I feel this incredible need to depend on you for all things, God. And so I, I do pray um, that as I communicate, that uh, I communicate in a way that's helpful to people. I pray that I would communicate in a way that is um, accurate to the text here, and then also, honestly, what brings you glory. So uh, we need your spirit to guide in this. There's a lot of things that come into our minds right now, and there's a lot of distractions that come before us. Lord, I pray we'll be able to set those things aside and just focus on this text and what you have for us for a few minutes here today. I pray that it's helpful uh, in an honoring, uh, God-honoring way. We love you. And we pray that we would serve you well during these next few minutes as we look at this passage of Scripture. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So two individuals today that I want to walk us through, okay? First of all is that there's an impressive centurion, okay? An impressive centurion here. Look at Luke's uh, description of this guy here, okay? And so we, we find out a little bit about him, that he uh, had a servant uh, who was sick, um, and then he hears about, the centurion hears about Jesus, according to verse 3, and so he sends the elders of the church. I mean, think about what we can take away from what Luke just briefly talks about this guy for just a second here. I mean, obviously this guy was patriotic. He served Rome. He served his, his country of love, and so he, he gave his life to military service there. We know he was successful in some ways, by military standards. He was a centurion. If you're not familiar with that phrase, uh, in the Roman military, what this meant was is that he was someone who was in charge of 100 soldiers, okay? Centurion, century, 100. And so he was in charge of, of overseeing 100 soldiers in the Roman Empire, Roman military. And so obviously he was very successful in his military career of advancing into this place of leadership. We know that he was kind, says he highly valued his servant. He had a servant, which in that context, he didn't necessarily have to be kind towards, but he, he highly valued this guy, according to, I believe it's verse 2, yeah. And he, uh, he, was, he seems that he just had, is a kind-hearted person. We know that he's wealthy um, because of what the, the Jewish leaders say about him, but not only is he wealthy, he's wealthy and generous. He built the synagogue for these people. This is what they say. They said in verse 5, it says, For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And so these Jewish leaders, they, they, were, they were grateful for him. And this guy, he used his wealth and, uh, uh, to, to, to build a synagogue for the Jews and where he was stationed. So he was wealthy. He was kind. He was generous. He was gracious towards the Jews, right? I mean, he builds them a synagogue, right? Now, if you know anything about these relationships in the Scriptures, but the Roman military and the Jewish uh, people, they didn't always have the best of relationship. But yet, somehow, this centurion, this guy, he is gracious towards the people that he is uh, stationed by. He's humble. 
I mean, look what he says, and he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And in, in, in case this is confusing to you, when he says there um, in verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. What he's saying there is he's saying, listen, I get authority. He says, I recognize authority, and you've got it. He says, I can say to a soldier, you go, and he goes and does it. I can say, you come here, and he comes here. And there's no questions being asked because I have authority. He says, I get authority. I understand it. And you, Jesus, you have authority. So he's humble. He says, I don't, he goes, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. So we think about it. This guy's patriotic. He's successful. He's wealthy. He's generous. He's gracious. He's humble. I mean, I, I thought of the story of Naaman. Remember Naaman back in 2 Kings? You know, I was told he had leprosy and he needed to be healed from. And so the prophet comes to him and says, go and wash in the river. And he's like, I'm going to go in that stinky river. And he says, no, you've got to do what God tells you to do. It appears that this soldier is completely different than that. Completely different. All these things. I bet he was probably good looking too. He could probably play the guitar, you know. <laughs> He said everything, right? He said everything, right? This is how Luke describes this guy. But look at not only Luke's description of it, but then the Jewish leaders, they, they're admiring him. They were willing to be his messenger service. Did you see that? Did you point that? It says that, it says that now the centurion, he had a servant of six. This is verse 2. Verse 3, so he sent, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asked him to come and heal a servant. So this Roman centurion goes to the Jewish leaders and says, hey, I need Jesus. Go talk to him for me. Now, Matthew gives an account of this. Now, if you were to read, I think it's Matthew chapter 8. If you were to go to Matthew's account of this, you would see some kind of some different things. It almost appears, according to Matthew's reading of this, that Jesus and the centurion are having a conversation face to face. Now, Luke here is very clear that they're not. So you say, well, how do we reconcile those two accounts of it? Well, I, I tell you how we recognize it, because in ancient Near Eastern thought, when you would send someone on your behalf to speak on your behalf, it was as if they were talking to you directly. And so that's what Matthew's capturing here. Matthew's capturing this, this personal conversation he's having through the Jewish leaders that he doesn't even choose to mention. But Luke, he tells a, a different layer of the details of the story. And he says, but he has sent someone. And it's not the same way. It's Jewish leaders that he sent. They're willing to be his messenger service. That's astounding to me. That's amazing to me, right? And what did they say about him? In verse 4, they said, he, they, first of all, they pleaded with him earnestly. Luke is very careful with his word choice. And he says he, he, pleads, with Jesus, he pleads with Jesus earnestly, saying, go heal this guy. Heal this guy's servant, okay? He is worthy of this. So don't lose the significance of the Jewish leaders, what they said about a Roman soldier as being worthy of Jesus' attention. We read these details sometimes in these stories and we kind of just move forward. But think about it here. There is some significance there. So if we're going to talk about this idea, okay, we're trying to live a grounded life. But we just can't seem to get traction. So how does this help for us? Well, there's two people that are going to help us today in this story. And the first of all is that this guy, that he is just an impressive centurion here. If anyone had traction in this life, it was this guy. But as we see in the text, it wasn't his, his successful career or his generosity or his niceness that impressed Jesus. That's not what Jesus is amazed by. The takeaway here, I want to be very clear, is not to downplay hard work or disciplined living or progress or success. 
I'm not trying to downplay that at all. In fact, we need to, to go towards it. We need to work hard, right? And we need to, to be disciplined in our lives. We need to work for success in whatever God's done. The Bible says that whatever we put our hand to do, we do with all of our might, right? It says that when we work, we work heartily as to the Lord and as to man. So what I'm saying here is not to downplay that truth. But what it is, instead, the takeaway is that this is a reminder that as good as those things are, that's not primarily what catches Jesus' attention. And this text is very clear about this. We have this impressive centurion here. So as we're trying to figure out how do we navigate this life when we can't seem to get traction, he's helpful to us. But what impressed Jesus was different. So not only do we have an impressive centurion, but we have an impressed Savior in this text. Think about that. It says that he marveled, verse 9, at him. Jesus marveled at the centurion. Let that sink in. That's amazing to me. He will, Jesus is just amazed at this guy. Now, there's a theme in this Bible about what God tends to value that is in tremendous contrast to what man tends to appreciate. Let me trace this theme just for a couple minutes here, just for a minute or two here. Is that, you know, first of all, look at like the nation uh, that God chose to work through. Now, when we go through the Old Testament, we see that the, God created Adam and Eve. This is back in the garden. And so this is when he creates it, creation week. He, he, he creates a bunch of things. And in the end, he creates Adam, and then he forms Eve. And then there's a day of rest. And it's just a wonderful beginning to this, this, this earth, right? Well, then you know the story. You many of you are familiar with the story. There's a rule that's put in place that, you know, you can eat of all the trees, but just this one tree, don't eat that tree. For the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Well, you know, they eat of it. That's what's called the fall. So we have the creation, and then we have the fall. That's so if you hear theologians talk about the fall, that's what it's talking about here. Okay, mankind, sin, enter when sin entered the world. Uh, Paul, the apostle Paul is going to talk about this in Romans chapter 5. Okay, so, so we have this, what's going on. So, but before, according to Ephesians chapter 1, we know that there was a redemptive plan, that God, before the foundations of the earth, knew that all this was going to happen, and he had a plan in place for this. There's some nuances there that are hard to reconcile, I totally understand, but the reality of it, this is what the Bible teaches. So we have this, and so we, we move forward in history a little bit through our biblical narrative, and we come to a man by the name of Abraham. Now, Abraham... God made a promise to him. Abraham and Sarah were trying to have children for years and years and years and years. In their old age, they had no children. It was very significant, particularly in that culture. Uh, for those of us who uh, walk in today's context of trying to have children, and, and that's been a difficulty, that, that's, we know the pain associated with that, right? But in that culture, there was actually another layer because even your, your whole identity and your family's identity was attached. To this. I mean, your name became son of or, or, or father too, right? So anyway, so God tells Abraham and his wife, Sarah, you're going to have a child. And I'm going to make out of this child a nation, this great nation. Fast forward, this is the nation of Israel, okay? But God, he, he didn't make this a nation like mighty Egypt, okay? God could have chosen Egypt, right? This, this powerful Egyptian culture that produces 
wonders that we still have today that we're still trying to figure out how did they make these pyramids, right? I mean, think about that. You go to that and you see these things. It is absolutely astounding. How did that happen? How did this culture, I mean, the pharaohs and the, 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 the technology, this, this mighty nation, God could have said, man, that's the place I'm going to work with. But he didn't. He didn't choose Egypt. Later on, we know that other nations rise to power like Assyria or Babylon, Persia. Chaldeans, all of these nations that will rise up in great power. God says, it's not that. He says, I'm going to make a nation called Israel. And it's going to be not because of their might. Look what Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, says. Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says this, verses 7 through 9. God says, it's not because you, talking about Israel, it's not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord, this is Moses giving God's word, sorry. It is not that you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to thousands of generations. So at the second given to law, after the exodus, after they leave the bondage of Egypt, this is what's being communicated. Listen, you've got to remember, this isn't because you're this great nation. This is not why God's doing this. This is not why he chose to work through you. It's because of his love towards you. You are the fewest. You were lowly compared to the other nations. So there's this theme all throughout Scripture about who God chooses to work with and who God is, is drawn towards, right, and how he chooses to unfold his plan. He chose lowly nation of Israel. But, you know, I also want to point out, look at the heroes of the Bible for just a second. I mentioned Abraham a second ago. I mentioned a minute ago that he was told uh, that God, by God, said, you're going to have a child. And you know how he responded, right? He laughed. Okay, Sarah, his wife, laughed. He laughs as well. There's not that the belief there that this is actually going to happen. And then later on, this is when he's going through his journeys and things like this, he's so afraid that people are, are, are going to think his wife is beautiful and all this stuff. So he's lying about who his wife is. And so this is one of a, this is the guy who got started Israel with, right? Okay, and here he is, he's lying. Here he is, he's laughing at God. This is one of our heroes. Not just Abraham, but then we go to like someone like Moses. Now, apparently, Moses had an anger problem. Okay? Now, the reason why I say that is because early on, we see him, he gets upset at an Egyptian soldier, and he kills him. And he buries the body in the sand. Then later on, fast forward, while he's leading, he gets chosen by God to lead the people out of Egypt. And so when he's doing that, they get into the wilderness. And they're thirsty, and they need water. Maybe some of you remember the story. And so he needs water and stuff, and they're complaining, and they're all upset, and they're upset at him, and they're saying that, you know, you brought us out here to die, and all this stuff and everything. And earlier, God had told him, he said, take your rod, hit a rock, and then, or, or, or touch the rock with it, and then the water's going to come out. And so he finds himself in a similar situation, and so he takes his staff, and in anger, and he says, Here's what I'm going to do. Do I have to give you water again? And he takes the stick and he hits the rock. Now, God in his grace made it happen. But that was a tremendous sin. In fact, it was so bad that he couldn't go into the promised land. Now, parenthetically here, okay, I'm just being honest at this point here, which I typically try to be, is, um, hopefully you get the irony there, okay, um, is that uh, when I get to heaven, 
I'm going to go up to Moses, right? And I'm just going to say one thing to him. I know why he hit the rock. <laughs> all right? I get it. You know? I get it. You got people complaining all the time and stuff like this. You know, not you guys, but, you know, I mean, just saying in life in general, right? Okay? So this is, this is one of our heroes. We have, we have Abraham. We have Moses. Uh, well, let me give you one more. We have David. You know David, King David, man after God's own heart, right? Okay, and so here he is. Uh, uh, he's brought out, you know, there's to be a new king. There was King Saul, and they need a new king because he didn't turn out too well. And, and so uh, the prophet is told, okay, it's going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so they bring all the sons out there and, and all the strong, big guys and everything. And nope, that's not that son. Do you have any other sons? Well, there's one little guy. He's out in the field. So they'll go get him. This is the guy, okay? It's David, right? And so David, he becomes the next king of Israel. Um, God has said about him, I'm seeking after a man after my own heart, right? Okay, and so this is, you know, when we're first introduced to David, we're just amazed by him. We see, you know, all how he unfolds his friendship with Jonathan, and it's just a beautiful story to read in 1 Samuel. Um, But then, later on, while the military is out fighting the battle, and he's supposed to be out there, and he's not, and what happens is he sees a woman, She's a woman who's uh, bathing, and he looks on her, and he's like, I want her. And, and then he, he goes and brings her in, and, and it's just a bad scene. It's a bad scene of King David here. And then it gets worse. It gets worse. She comes to him sometime later and says, I'm pregnant. And so instead of owning it, what he does is he says, okay, let's bring your husband back from battle. And let's try to make it so that everyone thinks that it's his child. Oh, that doesn't work. It doesn't work in a lot of ways. And so David then, he orchestrates so that as this man in battle goes to the front, everyone knows a code that is to draw back except for him. This is David's orchestration. And so in the heat of the battle, the sound, the code comes out, the word comes out, everyone falls back, and yet Uriah was his name. I mean, he's there, and he's fighting by himself, and he looks around, and no one's around, and he dies at the hands of King David's scheme and plot. That's your hero, King David. I went to Israel several years ago, and I saw David's tomb. Remember that? Going to David's tomb. Ah, big shrine, all this stuff. This is who he was. Okay? These are the heroes that God chooses to work with. Now, I, I just mentioned Abraham, Moses, and David. I could, I could go on and on and on. But you know what those three, thing have, those three people have in common? Those three people have in common that God made a covenant with each one of them. Think about that. And think about this. He made a covenant with them knowing full well in advance what they were going to do. Okay? And then furthermore, think about this. Think about how the New Testament primarily remembers Abraham, Moses, and David. It's not about these things, although they don't hide it. This is the beauty of the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat these things. But it's primarily they remember David as someone who God used to accomplish his plan and purposes. So, who does God typically choose to work with? Is it the people that seem most successful and never uh, slipping up, never falling down? No, that's not it at all. Yeah, I could keep going on and on, but let me give you one more. So we've looked at 
the nation. We looked at heroes of the Bible. But then, you know, I, I have to. I had to bring up the disciples, right? I mean, I couldn't talk about this thing without bringing up the disciples, right? So, the, you know, Jesus, he made 12 disciples or he called 12 people to follow him while he was in his earthly ministry, known as the disciples, okay? Um, here these guys are slipping and sliding through life while walking in the physical presence of Jesus. How many times have you read through some of the things that these guys were arguing about and not getting, and you're thinking to yourself, guys, you are literally with Jesus here. How, I, mm. I mean, how many times did Jesus have to referee this self-promotion arguments and things like who's going to be considered greatest, who's going to be able to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom, all these type of things. Jesus has to deal with this time and time again. How many times did Jesus have to remind them, listen, I'm going to go and die. Okay, okay, I'm going to go and die, all right? And then one of them, Peter's, is like, no, and he rebukes Jesus in this. He's like, where have you been? I've been talking about this, right? How many times did Jesus have to do these things? And then furthermore, how many times did Peter deny Jesus and even knowing him in Jesus' most vulnerable moment in his earthly life? And before we're too hard on Peter, just keep in mind that the Scriptures are clear that all the disciples left Jesus that night. These are the people that God chose to work with, okay? You think these are the guys who have traction. Love. These are the guys who are, 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 are not falling down at all. No, absolutely not. So here's the point. As God doesn't primarily work for those who seem to have it all together. 1 Corinthians, here's a great reference that you need to write down and need to think through and meditate on. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. For consider your calling, brothers, that many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You see, God, he doesn't primarily work for those who seem to have it all together. That's the point here. Now, remember, we've said this. We've said, okay, how are we going to try to figure out how to live a grounded life, steadfast, unmovable, always grounding in the work of the Lord, when we just can't seem to get traction in life and whatever that looks like for you? We said, well, there's an impressive centurion that is helpful towards us and they say, man, this guy had it all together here. But then we realized that's not exactly what caught Jesus' attention. And so then what we've done is we looked at what the, there was an impressive, an impressed Savior, though, in this narrative. And we see that Jesus is impressed. But we see it's not primarily because of people who have it all together. We've just looked at just kind of this brief survey in the biblical narrative, because what I wanted you to see is that this is not an isolated truth here with Jesus. This is reflective of how God has worked with humanity from day one. So what does God value then? Well, the text is clear. God and Jesus value faith. There it is. You say, yeah, I saw this one coming. All right. Well, good. All right, but do you believe it? Yeah, we see a lot of these things coming. We know a lot of what the truths are in Scripture, but do we actually believe it? You see, what amazed Jesus about the centurion here it says in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
It, the thing that caught Jesus' attention there was not how generous this man was, although generosity is good and we're called to be generous. The thing that caught Jesus' attention there was not his kindness, the centurion's kindness, although we are told to be kind one to another. Those things are what, it wasn't the success plan. It wasn't that everything seemed to be falling in place for this guy and that he just seemed to have everything working together for him. Everything was working. No, 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 no. Jesus was amazed. That's what the word of marvel there just means he's just utterly amazed at this man's faith. And so, how did he express that? Well, one of the ways he expressed it was he knew that Jesus didn't even have to come into the house to heal the servant. He says, all you have to do is say the word. In fact, he says, I'm not even worried they have you into my house. But just say the word, and it will be done. I tell, servants, I tell soldiers all the time, do this, and they have to do it. I know, I know that if you say, Jesus, if you say because of your authority, because of your power, if you say, my servant is healed, it's as good as done. Now, that's tremendous faith. But this is what the centurion had. Now, compare that to, like, Mary and Martha. We talked about Mary and Martha last week. Now, there's another narrative, which is a beautiful narrative in John chapter 11, where Mary and Martha come back onto the scene. I briefly mentioned it last week, actually. And it was a good expression because of when Martha left her responsibilities of all that was going on with the mourning of her brother's death, and she came out to meet Jesus. And that was just a sign of growth in her. But there was something that both Mary and Martha both said. Because if you remember the story in John chapter 11, we know that there was this time where... Uh, um, uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus, he died, and, uh, and Jesus got word that he was sick, first of all. And he delays his coming, and he gets there, and he, Jesus knows, and there's kind of a backstory behind this that we, I won't take too time to, a lot of time to get into. But just so you know, the backstory behind this is that Jesus knew that the moment he walked back into Jerusalem or the Jerusalem area in Bethany, he knew that he was a target. He knew that that was going to put into motion his death. Because they were so upset with him, and it surely plays out. In fact, you're going to see that they even try to kill Lazarus in John chapter 11 as well because of this. And so when Jesus does this healing, and he knew that once he would do this healing, it was a point of no return. Now, Jesus didn't delay because he was unsure about it, but he just knew that this was a pivotal moment. Okay, so that's the backstory behind all this, okay? So Jesus delays his going into Bethany near Jerusalem there to go to his friend's house and he gets there, and both Mary and Martha, they say something to Jesus. They say this, if you would have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Compare that to our centurion today. Do you see the parallel? The centurion says, you don't need to be here. You just say the word. Now, I'm not, I'm not putting down Mary and Martha when I say that. That's not the point of that. The point is to highlight, rather, the significance of the centurion, this Roman soldier who says, you don't even have to be here. I need to bring his clothes. But you're in Luke chapter 7. Turn the page, all right? And at the end of this same chapter, we're introduced to somebody else. In verse 36, we're introduced to a woman. So this is the same chapter. Now, just think about how Luke is structuring this and what he's trying to communicate here. He's talking about the centurion's face. He's talking about Jesus, of, of how uh, he had faith. He's already, there's another narrative about raising a widow's son, which is a beautiful story, then the story of John the Baptist's messengers coming. But then Luke tells us about this woman here. 
Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and, and took place, his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. And then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, so he turned towards the woman and he says to Simon here, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You've gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom is forgiven loves Who's been forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that he even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What does Jesus highlight? Her faith. Do you think this woman had traction in life? Do you think she was stumbling along through life? Do you think she was frustrated by the fact that she got up and she would just sin again or she would, something would happen to her and people would look at her in the wrong way? She just couldn't get ahead in life? Do you think that she got frustrated by the fact that only people, when they saw her, they just saw it and they said it in their heart, just like this Pharisee, there's a sinner. Do you think she didn't have hope? But what did Jesus say to her? It wasn't that you wet, uh, uh, wept over me, anointed my head that saved you. It was your faith that saved you. God values faith. So the question today was, how can I live a grounded life when I can't seem to get traction in life? Answer, God is not primarily concerned with your efficiency, success, or traction in life. He's concerned with your faith in him. And again, the point of the sermon isn't to downplay those other things. Don't hear that. But it is to highlight what God is most and primarily concerned with. So do you have faith? You say, well, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, faith is walking not by sight. It's by believing what Jesus says and what God says is true. It's continuing to do the right thing even when it is hard. It is accepting the answers or the non-answers to your prayers, believing that God knows what is best. I have several prayers that God just has not chosen to answer yet. I, 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 just last night, I finished up here, and uh, last night, and this final few things in the sermon... And um, 
I often, I love it. I'm here by myself. It's dark. I walk this room and I pray. And there's several things I've been praying for nine and a half years that God has not answered yet. There's some of you, I'm praying very specific things about you. But God hasn't answered yet. Maybe it's that he would grant a wish or desire of your heart. Or maybe it's for you to get past and to grow in an area that you desperately need to grow in. There's people I prayed that they would be here that haven't been here in a long time. And God didn't answer that request today. So what do I do? Do I just get ticked off? Do I get angry to go back to my office and say nothing works? No, I think what God's calling me to do is say, I'm just going to believe that you're doing what you're doing here. And I'm just going to try to be faithful. And I'm not trying to put myself up as, as the example to follow. Lord knows how many lapses and frustrations and things that I have. But what I am trying to say is that what gets the attention of God is not so much of having your life neatly and all orderly, although it's, we should try for those things, is our faith in him. I go back to, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, knowing in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That's faith. Knowing that what you're doing is not in vain. Don't give up. I say it's not worth it. I'm not going to serve in this ministry anymore because no one's saying anything. No, the, kid, the kids aren't saying anything or the adults don't respond to my teaching or whatever. Whatever No, no, no. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'm not going to witness anymore to my coworkers because they just continue to think I'm crazy. Listen, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Yeah, I'm not going to continue to try and work and be a good parent to my kids because they just don't listen. No, no, no. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That is living by faith. And that is what amazes God. And he gives grace. 